Shall we go come into the Lord in prayer? Father, I confess my need, Lord. Father, I confess that all I have is what you give me. Father God, I ask that you prepare our hearts and our minds, Lord God, to ultimately hear from you. I've exhausted myself, humanly speaking, Father God. So in my weakness, Father God, may your power may be, may be made manifest. That whatever blessing, whatever good can come from this study, Lord God, you and you alone may get the glory. I confess, O oh God, that I am a jar of clay with the treasure of your word. A fragile jar of clay to show that the power is of God and not man. Father, please save us, Lord God, from familiarity, Father God, and overlooking it, Lord God, and taking it as common. But help us, O oh God, to ponder and contemplate and meditate upon that which you have us for us today. Father, be with us, for apart from your doing, nothing happens, Lord. Be with me, Father, be with me, for thy name's sake, in whose name we pray, amen. So today we'll be covering a very common uh, topic, and that is the creation of man. Um, our anchor verses, of course, will be found in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, but I want to start in verse 24. Um, we know the context that the Lord is speaking the world and everything in it to existence. So we'll start in uh, Genesis 1, 24 to 27. There's a couple points I want to make to set this off. Genesis 124 reads, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Our text. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female he created them. I want to ask a very simple question that I would love for you guys, for us all to take seriously. 
considering the human body, considering all of its wisdom and perfect mathematics, when was the last time that you pondered on the reality that you were made out of dirt? Like, just re- I really want to slow down and just really take this in. You were made out of dirt. That should, in an instance, uh, bring about some humility. But just does it, does it birth any awe that God can do such a thing? I believe that many overlook this. As I was reading and studying for this in, in verse 26, then God said, like, do you perceive in, in, in this very text, then God said, let us make men in our own image and after our own likeness. Do you perceive the love of God of that, that he actually thought of you individually? Have you thought about that? Like, because, again, we can just read it and say, okay, this is what actually happened. But when you take it personal, that he thought of me. He thought of me. What I hope to exercise is that we look past what is in front of us. We look past the created into its creator. That's my goal. Not only that, I mean, not the fact that we were, that we were made out of dirt and the Lord created us and had us in mind. Then God said... Let us create Cindy. Let us create Lily. That's just unbelievable to me. But if that's not awe-inspiring and marvelous enough, God did it again for those who have been born again. And he did it at the greatest cost imaginable, at the cost of the death of his own son. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation I, I mean, the brothers that are doing the knowing Christ study with me know that something that I commonly say is um, the goal of our study, the goal of my devotional, the goal of my Christian life is to know in order that what I know affects my affections. That's like, I'm like, man, this is like my striving. It's like, okay, I, I can quote that. I know about, and I would argue that if, if, You think you know Christ and it doesn't have an effect upon you. You should really ask yourself, do you know him? I'm not not saying that I do know him. God knows that I'm striving towards that. But I'm sure all of us have, either ourselves or someone else, have, have been so excited about a book or movie we've seen. And you can tell that person is very excited about that. But do we talk about Christ like that? So we have four points. I've got to remember, I've got to stay, stay on, my, on my RC. I've got, got to get used to this. So there's, there are four points that I want to cover today. Our four points are, oh my goodness, this hieroglyphics, but. The first point is the meaning of man. You ain't lying. 
Aha. And then there was... Next is the image of man. Third is the, because Frank distracted me, the nature of man. And the fourth is the purpose of man. I'm going to try to fly through these as best I could. Oh, the meaning, the meaning of man. This is going good. The meaning of man. So I'm sure that this information is going to be familiar to you, maybe to some not. But again, my goal is not to only provide you information, but through information, motivation. That through knowledge, we may be motivated to fulfill the very purposes we were created for. So let's start with the meaning of man. So the Hebrew term for man is Adam. So the Adam is derived from a root word meaning to be red, to be the color red. So now the word for ground, the Hebrew word for ground is Adama, which can also mean land, earth and soil and soil meaning from its general redness. So those, the same root word that Adam and Adama come from is they, they no, I'm sorry, the, the root word for Adam and Adama is the same root word. And we can see the relationship because man was created from dirt. Right. So the three uses of the word Adam, let me see. there are three uses for the word for the for the word Adam. And that the first one I wrote too big, but we'll, we'll get we'll. So Adam, the first one is. Mankind, just plurality, man, kind, just general uh, humanity, plural. So we read that God created, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, right? And let them clearly a, a plurality, not referring to a singular gender. Number two is man as opposite of woman. So distinguishing man and woman. Distinguishing Man and woman. And the third use is obviously the, the, the name Adam. Here's a fun fact. When was, when was Adam, the name Adam given? Can everybody know? Like, like why was or how was the name Adam given? Anybody? So you know what I discovered? Because I, 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 I was curious about that too. It is actually just assumed. So something that the word does, it, it constantly, we see that with Abraham, we see that with Sarah, we see that with, with Israel, we see that with Isaac, that the very meaning of the word that they were given is their actual name. Because I know in, in Genesis 3.20, we see that the naming of, 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 um, of Eve but we don't we don't see that with Adam, which I found interesting. So let me let me ask, why is the definition of man important? Because, again, like we, we could we understand man and, and, and so quickly we could say, wait a minute, like, why not woman? 
But why, why would you say that definitions are important? And, and specifically defining the word man. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Get to Amen. Amen. Anyone else? Frank. The man gender? Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I think um, the point that Brother Tony made is one that I found interesting and, and because of the time that we're living in. Um, where there is gen- gender neutrality and 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 this universal, at least the attempt of universal inclusivity, that there all these pronouns in order to be inclusive and not offend anyone. So the idea of man obviously can sound insensitive to a woman, but it has warrant in God's word. And I believe that there's a biblical principle here to consider, and there's even a th- theological issue at stake. So. I want to I want to make the example. Have you guys heard of a state representative by the name of Emmanuel Cleaver? Emmanuel Cleaver, anyone? So he I'm sorry. No, he is a practicing so-called pastor in Missouri. You see what I, I, I say so-called in a second. So to make my point in an attempt to be inclusive towards women. On January 3rd, I'm actually ashamed that that's actually my birthday, but January 3rd of last year, the opening day of the, of the 117th, 17th Congress, listen to how he closed his prayer. Listen to this. Peace on our families, peace on this land, and dare I ask, O oh Lord, peace even in this chamber now and evermore. We ask it in the name of the mono, monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths, a man and a woman. So this is the type of compromise. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that, that, that Tom and Tony know what that is. But this is the type of compromise we want to be careful of. And, 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 and what, we, the, what's at, what is at stake here, or the biblical principle here, is especially in this day and age where the persecution of the church is near and already happening, right? So the, the, what we want to be mindful is the compromise of biblical convictions in order to accommodate sin. So may God help us 
echo the words of Luther when he says, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Amen. Let us now go to the image of man. And when we talk about the image of man, obviously what is implied is the image of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Anyone? Frank? Amen. Amen. Thank you, my brother. Anybody else? Yes. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So you, you brought up a good point. Um, and that is like categorically, even for review, because I, I, I once taught on the communicable attributes of God and the introduction. So there's the moral aspect, right? our moral compass, um, which is unlike animals, which are instinctual. Right. Uh, the, our moral, our moral compass uh, and being made in the, in the image of God makes us accountable to God. Being made in his image, we are expected and required to reflect him and, and also act in a manner that reflects our, our, our maker. Spiritual aspects, the immaterial realm, right? The immortality, our spirits will never cease to exist. And, that, and our spirits is also that which enables us to relate to God. Romans eight sixteen, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And I, and I love that point that, that Brother Tom brought up, the, the ability to create. I, I think that was something that actually stood out to me. The fact that we can create an intangible to a tangible, that is remarkable to me. I mean, think of a painter, a songwriter, that you can actually see something. I'm a songwriter myself, but you can see, like you hear something, see something, and then make it tangible. And again, as our Brother um, Tom said, the relational aspects. And the difference between, obviously, we, we can see a sense of community with animals, but obviously the difference is not in our ability to, 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 the difference between humans is not in the ability in animals, but in the depth of our interpersonal harmony. And we see that in marriage, family, even church fellowship. I appreciated how Anthony Haukima, which is a minister uh, and professor in the 1900s, he summarized the four stages of the doctrine of the image of God. And I want to write that down. He, the, the first one is, this is the doctrine of the image of God upon man, is the original image. Number two, this is obviously before the fall. Number two is 
the perverted, perverted or restored or distorted. Distorted image. Number three is the renewed. Or restored. Image. And number four is the perfected. Future tense and in our glorified. The perfected. I mean, I want to focus on, um, just want to make a, a point on the on point two, which is the perverted image happening after the fall. So the question is, um, obviously we know after the fall, the image of God upon man was distorted. But the question is, was it lost? And if it was lost, what would, how would you guys say that? How would you define uh, or defend rather that it was not lost? What are you guys thoughts? Was the image of God lost after the fall upon man? And, and how would you defend that? Amen. 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 Just to piggyback on that, and then I'll, I'll go to Marcia, is James 3 9. Speaking of the tongue, with it, the tongue that is, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. And I, and I had that same verse in Genesis 9. And, and, and so the, the, the logic here is how can we praise God and then speak evil to the one who bears his image? So there's still a dignity there. Uh, Marcel, you want to say something? Mm-hmm. And we were doing, um, you 
Nice. Bob, do you have anything on? Amen. Amen. So we clearly see that the. Yes. Thank you. So, so we can see, and thank you all for sharing, that the dignity is preserved, preserved um, which I think, I think speaks volumes that as, 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 as marred and distorted, as, as perverted we are, the, the dignity of man still remains. And the way that I kind of summarized that was dignity by creation depraved by sin. Now, speaking of dignity, bearing the image of God, how should this affect the way that we interact with others? So we see that root, right? You want to say something, Tom? Yeah, go ahead. Amen to that. Amen to that. Anyone else? Frank? Man, and I believe I believe was also contained here in that question. The answer to that question is is the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor. Um, and I believe also the essence of that is loving unconditionally. So you're loving due to dignity, not to not by merit. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's something that um, is very important, Bob. Amen. Absolutely. I would say it's impossible apart from the spirit. Yeah, brother. 
Amen. Amen. So now we can move on to, to the, the nature of man. And when I speak of nature, I'm not speaking of any particular characteristic, um, but rather the makeup of man. Like what are the essential parts of the man? Now, there is, and this is where, where the board is going to get. This kind of slows me down a little bit, but still R.C. Sproul's turning in his grave. Let me stop. Um, so when we talk about the, the essential parts that make up the man, there are three views or three schools of thought. The first one is trichotomist. Trichotomist. Dichotomist, dichotomous view, and monist. Anybody want to take a stab at these? The definition of these? Yep, trichotomy. Two. Yeah, body and soul, yep. What do you guys think? Do we have some trichotomists in the house? By show of hands, nope. Yeah, monist. Monistic is pretty much that there's just one essence of man and it's just the material body. It's just the body that, that, that even when the word speaks of, and this is out of like um, um, evangelical circles, but that the, the, the essence of man is just the body and that everything that is immaterial and mentioned, like spirit and soul, is just no, another word is synonymous for body. So it's just speaking of the one person. It's, moan, it's, just, it's just that. So as you guys said, the trichotomist, as we, as we I'll, I'll fly through these, is the three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The soul having, embodying the intellect, emotion, and will. The spirit is the part that rela- relates most to God in, in prayer and in worship. And it is in the trichotomist belief that, only, that the spirit only comes alive when he or she becomes a Christian. Now, the, the originator of this trichotomist view is an early church theologian by Arrhenius. His name is Arrhenius. He, he's the one who, who was credited for originating the, the trichotomist view. But interestingly so, he was also a dichotomist. So he was a dichotomist when it comes to unbelievers and a trichotomist when it comes to, to, to believers. So he said you become, the, the person becomes a... Uh, he says that the, for unbelievers, you are made in the image of God, but for the trichotomist, which he applied to believers, made in the image and likeness of God. He says that if the spirit of God is Arrhenius, if the spirit of God is missing in the soul, he who is such is certainly of an animal nature. Being left carnal, he is an imperfect being, possessing indeed the image of God in his formation, but not receiving the likeness of God through the spirit so that he believed that the spirit of God was added or the spirit was added to the person after conversion. The second one is dichotomy and dichotomists believe as sister Marcia said that the body and soul um, that man, that man is made up in two parts, body and soul or body and spirit. 
That spirit is not separate from the man. That body, that, that spirit and soul is the same thing. It's synonymous. And they, that, that they're both interchangeably used in scripture. So the, the person, another church, uh, early church figure by the name of Tertullian, he was the one who was credited for the um, dichotomous view. And his argument, which I agree with, his argument was that the impossibility of separating the activity of the soul from the activity of the spirit. So the question is, what does the Bible teach? Are there two or three parts in a man? So to start off, the Bible clearly teaches that there is an immaterial part to man's nature. We see clear reference to soul. We see clear reference to spirit. However, the terms for soul and spirit are used interchangeably with no discernible difference. So I'm going to quote a few scriptures here. So, for example, Jesus in John 12, 27 says, now my soul is troubled and is troubled. And in a similar context, in John 13, 21, we read Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Also, both spirit and soul is said to worship in scripture. In John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In Psalm 146, 1, the psalmist says, praise the Lord, O my soul. So here and, and so now and now the phrase of uh, here's a combination of both body and spirit. Sorry. And we see that in, in Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. We also see this reference and this interchangeable reference to those who have died in the faith. Hebrews 12, 23 says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So the scripture also uses a phrase of body and soul and body and spirit as well. And they use that. The scripture also uses that interchangeably. An example of body and soul is seen in Matthew 10, 28. We know that text and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul and toss them both into hell. So obviously what's implied is that. Soul and body is, is, is suggestive of the entire person. There's no suggestion of, a, of another immaterial spirit not being mentioned here. So body and spirit, Paul uses this same phrase in 1 Corinthians 7.34, approving the unmarried or, or betrothed woman. He says that is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. So again, the, the, the simple point here, you got a question? The, the simple the simple point here is just to prove that the Bible uses both body and soul interchangeably and that there's no discernible difference between the two terms. So the question becomes, what did Paul mean in First Thessalonians 5.23? 5.23 reads, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says spirit, soul, and body. 
And this is actually where Irenaeus anchored, that was his anchor verse for his trichotomous view. And he could thoughts on that? Why, why would Paul, Bob? Yes. With that thought, um, I don't know if you got heard, uh, like, traducianism and creationism. So creation is not as far as the origin of the world, but the origin of the soul. So I agree with that, because that, that was a whole nother rabbit hole. But the tradu- traducianists believe that, that God did exactly that, create, that there's, no, that there's not a separate creation and then a joining is all together. Amen to that. So as far as just the comments, um, so that that would like just get to come come conclusive as far as what did Paul mean? Because um, obviously people would anchor their beliefs in this into the trichotomous view. So we have to then uh, uh, consider the same thing that Jesus said when he said in uh, Mark twelve thirty, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind, and your strength. So obviously he can't be talking about the aspects of man because spirit or body is not included in there. So that would be four, five, six different aspects of man. So clearly um, the emphasis here is an emphatic expression to demonstrate that we should love God with all of our being. And in Paul's example, may the Lord sanctify you completely is actually comprised in that word completely. He's, he's suggesting your whole being, not being divisive. And this brings us to our last point, which is the purpose of man. The West minister, we all know this larger catechism says, what is the chief and highest end of man? And that is to glorify and fully enjoy him forever. And I found that interesting that it's both things as far as glorify and fully enjoy him. In Isaiah 43, verse six and seven, it says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. 
This begs the question that if the heavens testify and declare the glory of God, how much more should the pinnacle of his creation? We clearly understand that, that uh, the purposes of man, the purpose of man being made in, his, in God's image is to glorify God. But I want to really dig into that with the hope of getting to the motivation and ultimately motivating. So, if the purpose of man is to glorify God, does man need to know what the glory of God is in order to glorify him? What is then the glory of God? Let's dig into that. What is, what does the Bible mean when it says the glory of God? Anyone? I think a helpful way of going about it is defining holy and glory or holiness and glory. And to do that, let's go to Isaiah 6. Verse 3, and one, that is a seraphim, called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. One would think that after mentioning that God is thrice holy, one would say that the whole earth is filled with your holiness. But it does not. And I found that interesting. So let's dig into these words. The meaning of holy is what I call a sacred separateness. A sacred separateness. That God is so other than sinful, blemished man. That he's a sacred separateness. That to be holy apart or what I like to call a pristine perfection. So perfection has the connotation of loveliness. It has the connotation of beauty. You're holding your son, brother. I'm sure that you look at his face and be like, oh, he has the most perfect eyes and the perfect smile. And that, that, that suggests a certain beauty. I need some water. But that suggests uh, like a certain beauty. Um, is, that, is that new, brother? <clears throat> I'm losing my, my thing. Thank you, brother. Um, thank you, brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <whew. laughs> thank you, brother. <clears throat> thank you, brother. So, perfection. When I talk about pristine perfection. I am suggesting or like denoting a certain loveliness, a certain beauty. So when it comes to the to the to to God, we must multiply that loveliness or beauty by infinity. So God's holiness is his infinite to bring it to a definition. God's holiness is his infinite perfection, which speaks of his infinite greatness, which speaks of his infinite worth. Let us now define glory, which is a little bit more tricky to understand. I'm sure you heard the term that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So glory is a little tricky to define because it's an intangible reality. You really can't see it. You've got to describe it and try to, and you try to perceive it. So glory comes from the root word to be heavy or something that is weighty, 
a weight that is of substance. Also, depending on its use and the context of the word glory, it also can mean honor, splendor, or grandeur. So glory is something that can be perceived. We remember Moses saying in Exodus 33, please, Lord, show me your glory. Moses later says in Deuteronomy 5, 24, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. John 1, 14, and the, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. We saw it. We understand that Christ is the very radiance and the exact imprint of God that on his very face he is emanating, he's emitting, is, is, a, is, a, is a kind of communication. He is, he is communicating the glory of God. Therefore, we can define the glory of God in the following way. And this is, I was racking my brain at five in the morning trying to do this. The glory of God, this is my definition, the glory of God is the manifestation of the beauty of his holy perfections. The glory of God is the manifestation of the beauty of his holy perfection. So if the glory of God is the purpose of man and the glory of God is the manifestation of the beauty of his perfections, how do we glorify God? How do we glorify God? How? Hmm. I love, I love that order, by the way. Behold and then proclaim. Behold and then proclaim. Um, anyone else? Tom? Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you, brother. Bob? Amen. Is the Mastia?
unapproachable life. Amen. And, and the reason why I asked the question is, again, because I really want to dig. And obviously, whatever study I can do, the Lord is speaking to me first. And I was just really digging as far as how can I glorify God? Yes, I can do it. Um, and as Brother Tom said, and ascribe glory to him. But the things I do say, proclaim. Um, but I love and I'm sure you guys are familiar, those who listen to John Piper as much as I do. Um, one of my favorite expressions of how to glorify God is his go-to motto, and that is God is most glorified in me, in us, when we are most satisfied in him. And that's why going back to the Westminster Confession, a catechism, that the chief end of God is to glorify and fully enjoy, right? And I love how Frank said it, behold I think that's the order. Behold and proclaim. And you know that I'm big on see. I want to see. We must taste and see that the Lord is good. We must behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and be changed from glory to glory that then we may be able to glorify him. It's not just, yes, we bring him glory by just saying and quoting and obedience in these things. But man, there needs to be an enthusiasm. There needs to be an effect in our affections. And I, when I asked myself, okay, like how? I need to see God, that I may love him, that I may, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I believe it's all, I, I truly believe it all starts in seeing. I truly believe that. So I say, if we must see, and how do we see? We can see in his word, but I think ultimately we must ask. We must, we, we must quote the, echo the words of Moses, show me your glory, show me your glory. And so we must ask, Father, open and enlighten the eyes of my heart that I may behold Christ, the most wondrous thing in thy word. And I can't follow that up. Any 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 other questions or concerns or comments rather? So I would say let's close by asking. Father, thank you, Lord God, for the study you have given us, Lord God, at the marvelous work of your hand. That you have chosen to create man by scooping dirt from the ground and breathing life into him. 
Father, help us, O oh God, to take this personal because it is what occurred with every single one of us here. And Father God, we beg of you, Lord God, to open and illuminate the eyes of our heart that we may see, Lord. We desire to taste and see. We desire to behold, Father. We desire that by your spirit you may make Christ manifest to us. That we may not simply know about, but truly, experientially, intimately, Father, I pray, Lord God, that you may have sanctified every word, Father God, and plowed whatever fallow ground and whatever heart, Father, and have planted new seed for encouragement, for edification. That again, whatever good comes from the study, you get the glory, Father. For I'm very aware of my weakness. We thank you for this time and ask of your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray.